1992, a new video debuted on MTV, and suddenly America couldn't stop talking about two things, cars that bounce and a cornrowed rapper with a lovable lazy drawl and the improbable name of Snoop Doggy Dog. The song was nothing but a G thing, and the credited artist wasn't Snoop, it was his boss, Dr. Dre. Snoop came in on Dre's 1992 album The Chronic like a tsunami warning. It's common nowadays, even outside of hip-hop, for artists to get huge long before their first full-length release. But back then, before SoundCloud, before MySpace, before Napster, it fell to record store clerks to tell kids to be patient. Snoop's solo record is coming soon. Doggy Style dropped November 23, 1993, nearly a year after The Chronic, and it was an instant smash, selling over 800,000 units in its first week and making gin and juice a permanent fixture of the English language and drink menus the world over. This was a gangster rap album, sure, but where other releases were dominated by gritty street tales and diss tracks, Doggy Style was mostly about smoking weed, drinking, and fucking. One of the exceptions was Murder Was the Case, a song dramatizing Snoop's murder arrest, for which he was acquitted in 1996. After the acquittal, according to the LA Times, he moved with his girlfriend and their 20 pit bulls to a house in the extremely non-gangsta town of Claremont, California, which is where I went to college. This is a true fact that I did not make up. Over the years and multiple name changes since, Snoop Doggy Dog, a.k.a. Snoop Dogg, a.k.a. Snoop Lion, has released over a dozen albums and relaxed into his roles as America's favorite stoned uncle, culminating in the debut of Snoop and Martha's Potluck Dinner Party, which premiered on VH1 in 2016 and which he co-hosts with an actual gangster. This is Hidden Jukebox. Yeah, it's Mamser and Jamster in the SEA talking about Snoop D-O-double-G today. You, did you prepare that ahead of time? You better believe I did. <laughs> okay, so there, there's so many like dangerous. I, when I when I imagine like us walking into this podcast, it's like we're surrounded by piles of dog shit that we could step into <laughs> to to like extend the Snoop Dogg metaphor. I, I I don't understand how two white guys could possibly do anything wrong here. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I I mean. I'd hate to say that I'm an expert on this stuff, but I'm an expert on pretty much anything 90s, as we've proven already with one episode of this show. So, That's true. So we might as well dive into this and see how it goes. And this is the first episode we're recording with electricity. That that's true as well. Uh-huh. I mean, the things that you can accomplish in this day and age without electricity is pretty, pretty impressive. impressive. Yeah, I, I was blown away. Do you think he uh, Snoop Dogg used electricity in the making of this album? Well, I think the, uh, pre-show we discovered that this was actually uh, an album that used a lot of bagpipes. So. <laughs> Those are an acoustic instrument, therefore everything could have been recorded acoustic on this album. I didn't say there were actual bagpipes. We'll get into this. <laughs> um, where should we even begin? Like, did you did you buy this album when it came out? Were you how aware were you of this at the time? I was very aware of this okay. at the time, but I had this. Uh, I'd call it a moral dilemma of, oh, I was 13 years old when this came out. Nice. I was listening to a lot of grunge and. Nothing but a G thing had been out for a year, and I secretly loved it, but I didn't know if it was okay for oh. a young Jewish kid from Portland to like music like this. I don't think all the other young Jewish kids felt the same dilemma because they all bought it. I- exactly. Uh, and one of the things that I want to talk about in this episode is why does this appeal to white people so much? Yeah. 
I, I don't know. I don't know if we'll make a, any more of a dent in that question than anyone else has, but I'm eager to explore it also. I saw a most likely made up statistic that something like 70 percent of the people who bought this album were white people. Um, I mean, that is probably there's probably some truth to that. I don't know about the actual numbers, but it was a very popular album and there are a lot of white people in America. So it does <laughs> seem to make sense. Anyway, I uh I remember going to a friend's house who whose parents had let them buy this album. Nice. Um, it, you know, this album is misogyny. It's murder. Yeah. It, it's fucking hoes. It, you know, it, it's not the type of stuff that a 13 year old's parents go. Yes. Let's give this mm-hmm. to them and see what they think of it. I would like to teach my son how to hit them and quit them. <laughs> so uh, I, I had heard the lead single. What's my name? And. Uh, we listened to the entire album at a friend's house, yeah. and I couldn't decide whether I liked it or not. I was used to music like Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. and then moving into grunge, things with verse, chorus, verse, bridge, and I hadn't really been exposed to much rap at this point, and the idea of creating a beat and somebody creating lyrics over it at that age was kind of lost to me. Okay. That makes sense. So then when when did you like when did you come back around to appreciating hip hop or have you? Oh, it's it's one of my favorite genres now. Uh, Then again, I'm much less of a music fascist fascist than I used to be. I forgot we established Uh, that. Yeah. So uh, I don't know when I bought this album for the first time myself. I've owned it twice now. Uh, But sometime around mid high school, when I realized that every other kid absolutely love this album and own this album i gave it another listen and i i just realized it is hook after hook it really is and and that every single song on the album is creative and that despite the fact that i didn't think that there was verse chorus verse bridge they really are creating that even though the underlying beat never changes yes so it is very similar to everything else that i was growing up on just the context of the subject matter is a little bit different right so i think for me like this is almost more embarrassing than your story which is like you know i grew up listening to a lot of hip-hop um like a lot of kind of uh you know stuff stuff that was like okay with parents in the 80s like uh run dmc um and uh tone loke <laughs> Love the Tone Loke record, that sort of thing, um, and I and then I loved Public Enemy when Public Enemy first came out, and that was not long before Gangsta became like the thing in hip hop, and I found it kind of insufficiently political. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, I I wanted I wanted like all my rap songs to be about sticking it to the man in one way or another, and so this this seemed sort of self indulgent by comparison, <laughs> which it was. Um, but like, it wasn't until like I went to college a few years later and was majoring in black studies that uh, that I was like, oh wait, th- this stuff is political in a different way. Yeah, I, it's also very problematic. I, I was uh, mostly into Paula Abdul and Rick Astley around the time that you Absolutely. were listening to Public Enemy, so uh, I I wasn't exposed to it as much. I should say here that uh, Matthew, being about five years older than me, yeah. he, he exposed me to a lot of the music that I listened to back in the day and that I still listen to today. So I guess I started with the Chronic before I started listening to this album, and 
what I got from both of them, what you were mentioning about gangster rap, it was like, how do I relate to these guys who came up in the city of Compton, right? Uh, who spent every day on the streets, uh, either dealing drugs or being around people dealing drugs, running from the police and riding around in low pimped out 64 Impalas. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't think that's a difficult leap, though, because there because it's storytelling, you know, like my favorite movies are the Fast and Furious movies. I don't drive a car. Um, I've never crashed a car. <laughs> I've never raced somebody in a car. Uh, I've never solved an international, been called upon to solve an international crime that I'm totally unqualified to solve, like those guys do. But you know, it's not it's not difficult to enjoy those movies, and it's not difficult to enjoy you know a, a gangster album because it's full of exciting stories. Every piece of that was news to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the piece that that I have not been called upon to, to solve. You you thought I was often called upon by Interpol? Yes, exactly. Okay. I, I, the band Interpol. <laughs> we need we need a bass player. <laughs> they they always need a bass player. Um, well, let's start out by uh, jumping into the music a little bit. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, I want to start out with Gin and Juice, even though it's not the first uh, single off the album. It it's the one that really got me into it. Sure. With so much drama in the LBC, it's kind of hard being Snoop D-O-double G, but I somehow, someway, keep coming up with funky ass shit like every single day. May I kick a little something for the G's and make a few ends as I breeze through. Two in the morning and the party still jumping cause my mama ain't home. I got bitches in the living room getting it on and they ain't leaving till six in the morning. Six in the morning. So what you want to do? Shit, I got a pocket full of rubbers and my homeboys do too. So turn off the lights and close the doors. But, but what? We don't let them hoes. Yeah. So we gon' smoke a ounce to this. G's up, hoes down. Why you motherfuckers bounce to this? Lay back With my mind on my money and my money on my mind Rolling down the street Smoking in love Sipping on dinner and Lay back so the first thing that uh, the, the thing I keep coming back to in this song um, is uh, I love that he uses the word drama in the first line. <laughs> it, I, it's so much fun to imagine. God, so much drama. <laughs> it's all the drama in the LBC. I mean, of, of all the ways that you could describe what was going on at that point, it's just a lot of drama. Yeah. I mean, this was post Rodney King, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and there, I guess there was a lot of there drama. There was a lot go- of drama. Go- yes. Out. So this brings up a lot of points. It for really me. does. Um, th- this song basically encapsulates what I was talking about. With there is a verse at the beginning, and then there's this chorus created. And Dr. Dre is all over this thing. Yes, he he creates these songs that are all based in minor key. That the melodies sound like they're out of a haunted house. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yes, you're going through the haunted mansion. Dr. Dre should be hired to score the haunted mansion. Yes, it, it it's brilliant though, and 
he does these little textures where on the choruses he'll bring down the melody and then it kind of crescendos into a chorus that uh, that the melody comes way up. Uh, they do a repetitive type of line like rolling down the street, smoking Indo, mm-hmm. sipping on gin and juice, and everybody in the room can sing along with it. Yes. I like how, how Indo and Tanqueray keep appearing all over this album. Uh, something tells me that Snoop, as a 22-year-old uh-huh. rapper, was really into weed and gin. You don't say. <laughs> uh, so the the other thing that this reminds me of and th- that we were going to discuss is Snoop has this voice that is solely his. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I, I always talk about that I love artists where you can hear them on the radio and and no matter whether you've heard the song or not, you instantly know who it is. And yes. Snoop's voice is so unique that he doesn't even have to be singing. I recently saw mm-hmm. a video of him uh, commentating a hockey game. Really? I don't even. Oh, I want to see that. Oh, it's brilliant. And I don't even know how this ended up happening, but. You you don't see him once. They don't show a video of him at all, but you know instantly that it's Snoop Dogg. He just has this very, very unique tone to his voice, this yes. unique timbre, and it's what makes a lot of what he does unique. Yeah, his nasal, he's got these like elongated, flattened vowels. Uh, like I, I remember when he first came out, like um, he, I don't know if it was he or if someone described it as uh, a, having a Calabama accent. <laughs> Um, and I thought that that would have been like become the standard way to describe his voice. But then when I Googled it, like nobody's used that term. I've since, never since heard like that before. 1994. Uh, yeah, definitely never heard that before. But it's it's really brilliant. And it's it's part of what made him a star. Uh, I had to look this up, even though the chronic was kind of what launched his career and put him on the map. This album, Doggy Style, was a bigger selling album than the chronic was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and. You got to give a lot of credit to Dr. Dre for that, but part of me wonders if he felt a little sting going, oh, my 22-year-old protege just knocked me out of the park in terms of the success of this album. The first week it came out, it sold 828,000 copies. That's a few, yeah. That's a lot, and it's sold, uh, I think, 8 million in the United States and 12 million worldwide since then. It's a big selling album, and it shows... That despite it, the fact that all of the topic is about Southern California and the specific area, it somehow got a global reach just based on how his storytelling seems to work so well and is so interesting to people. Um, yeah, but also like he's fun. You know, the, the there's stuff on the chronic that's a lot of fun, but Dr. Dre is, seems kind of like a serious guy and Snoop Dogg does not. But that's that's what's funny about it yeah. is is. All of the topics are basically about shooting people, dealing drugs, going to jail, uh, yeah. committing crimes. It's like, yeah, this guy is fun. I mean, there there's a lot of that on here, but there's also a lot of like we're we're just hanging out with the homies and uh, mistreating women kind of songs, <laughs> which I don't know. Like it starts right here in this song. I mean, it starts before that, but like, you know, right in the first verse of this song, like what are we supposed to do about that? This is again. Yeah. How, how did I hear this when I was 13 years old and say, Oh, 
I love this stuff. I can totally relate to this. I also like hanging out with the bros, sipping on 40s and Tank Ray, uh, fucking the hose, and uh, screaming 187 on a motherfucking cop. Right. Like, it's... The actual gangsta stuff seems like, you know, as has been pointed out again and again, you know, there there's not a lot of space between, like, The Godfather or Scarface and your average gangster rap album. Um, it's the, like... He has a very spe- specific and repeatedly stated hit him and quit him philosophy on this album that is, it, it's not it's not just offensive, it's kind of odd. That's part of why I, I'm shocked that it's so far reaching in its popularity. Yeah. Is it seems like the type of thing that, especially in this day and age, people would get so up in arms about. Like, you can't say that on an album. You can't talk about these things. You can't talk about women that way. You can't overtly talk about murder and doing drugs. You should be going to jail just for singing about this stuff, let I alone actually commit I think you can talk it. about doing drugs on an album today. I think that's okay. <laughs> okay, maybe the drugs I thing. I think I took a pill in Ibiza. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ibiza. <laughs> that, that's more like it. Uh, so... I also want to mention again, he was 22 when this album came out. And that means that when he was recording with Dre, when he first started, he was actually 20 years old. Mm -hmm. He got his start at a very young age. Yeah. I mean, I I was very stupid when I was 20 years old, I got to say. I'm not sure that I would call him a genius when he was 20 years old. But in in terms of, of creating his own sound and what he did with music, what he took from from what was happening before and what came after him, he had a big influence on some major, major artists as well as Dr. Dre did obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what he was able to do with gangster rap and creating a sound for the West coast. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that, that synth, the Dr. Dre synth line, like what you're, you're the musician in the family. What, what's he doing there? That's so effective. I feel like, like he's got like this kind of whiny synth sample and, and he maybe leaning on the, on the pitch bend knob. He is. Okay. Uh, and this one's a little bit of a dilemma for me because it's not like it's singable. It's not like anybody wanders around going, Exactly. But it's really catchy. It really is. Dre did this thing where he took uh, all of the beats and melodies and slowed them way down. Mm -hmm. It gave space for the rap artist, whoever that may be, to fit more into each bar. That makes sense. Into each beat. And it created space for a lot of texture to be going on. So when you listen to the drums on on things like this album, they sound so simple, but you start hearing the gate on the snares sure. and, and the reverb on the cymbals, and he's creating all of these different types of textures that your ear latch onto. So it's not the same way that a guitar line, like, like something from Van Halen, like, like the beginning of Jump, mm-hmm. uh, catches your ear. It's more something where you can lay back in the cut and <laughs> yes, and and just dance to it immediately without even thinking about That's it. That's it. Like you know, it sort of embodies the term earworm in that it's like a catchy insect that is buzzing around the track. It's it feels the synth line especially feels like it's sitting way apart from the rest of the instruments and yet is still an integral part of the track. 
more than an integral part of the track it's what makes the track yeah. it's, it's what creates the melody it's what creates a lot of the rhythms that whichever artist is rapping is doing uh like you can feel snoop pulling a lot of the rhythms that he does with his vocals off of what's being created under him by dr dre yeah it would be interesting to hear one of these songs with uh the synth line removed and hear like how much it reverts back to like like a uh you know uh Eric B and Rakim, uh, like Run DMC, Jam Master J style of like, you know, no, there's not not really a melodic component to, to those tracks very much. P- pretty simple, you know, yeah. it, it, that's that's kind of what differentiated what Dre was doing from the rest of them and, and what created this new West Coast sound. Yep. OK, so we listen to another song and then yeah. maybe talk about uh, guest artists. Let me, let me pick one that's got a uh, got a guest on it. Um, so, oh, how about G-Funk intro? Okay, let's do that. Yeah. This is another story about dogs. Well, the dog that don't pee on trees is a bitch. So says Snoop Dogg. So get your poop a scooper because the niggas talking shit. Stop it because I'm enjoying it too much. The bass line, like the farty bass line, is so great. That That is actually a synth bass, yeah. uh, which Dre used a lot. I mean, a lot of what he what he uses in his music is all electronic samples. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, not, it's not a lot of live music. Uh, that being said, this is sampling from uh, Parliament Funkadelic song, and a lot of what's on okay. this album and a lot of what Dre does is Parliament or Funkadelic or Parliament Funkadelic. That makes sense. Uh, we won't get into the differentiations between those on I'm this glad episode. there isn't going to be a quiz. Um, but that female vocalist is the Lady of Rage. Yeah, who's who is a, so great. And, and she's all over this album and was part of this West Coast movement, although never really made a name for herself on her own. She has one record. Uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and and it, it I don't never know what the story popular. is there. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Like I don't know if like she ran into some some personal problems or just uh, could not make it as a female solo rap artist at the time because she was very good. Well, this brings up the topic of guest artists on rap albums. Mm-hmm. So, in my opinion, aside from a few things here and there, the one that that comes to my mind is uh, "Beat It" by Michael Jackson. The guitar solo is actually done by Eddie Van Halen. Okay, sure. Um, but that's I don't think an instrumental appearance is is really considered like a guest in the hip hop sense. Yeah, right. So I mean, in, yes, Eric Clapton played on "Well, My Guitar Gently Weeps." In in the hip hop sense, though, it it seems almost criminal. Uh, not in the way that these guys are criminals, but criminal to <laughs> to not uh, put other artists on your album. Yes. Like you make an album and you get all of your homies in the studio with you and they record on one track or another track or another track. And in the time of NWA, they had created their own crew. So they could do albums where each track was a little different because there was five of them. Have you created your own crew? 
I yes. wish that I wish that I had my own crew. I guess I do, but we don't rap together because right. it would come out a total fucking mess. Yes. No. I one one time I was talking um, with uh, with some of my friends about like why don't doesn't and why don't we or anyone we know have like a group of friends like on a, a sitcom that like you go to the bar and they're always just there waiting for you. And if we did, who would be in that group? Like you know, we need like the the di- recently divorced person and like uh, et cetera. And and. All of you are somehow independently wealthy, even exactly. though yep. none of you know what the other one does. And if you do, it's not the type of thing that makes you independently wealthy. Yes, we, we all have we all have quirky jobs. Like I'm an architect, but I don't seem to need to go to work very often. <laughs> it's amazing. I designed the building. We're done, and let's move on to coffee. Yep. Cool. <laughs> uh, so, so this album has uh, I didn't even count probably. 10 different guests on it sounds about right and it's a trend that's continued to this day uh a a lot of stars become stars by previously guesting on somebody else's album and somebody says well who's that and then they will go on to release their own album and become a superstar on their own yeah the two that came to mind were around busta rhymes who who guested on a tribe called quest track around around the same time maybe Probably. Um, and uh, like that was that was the first most people had heard of Busta Rhymes, I think. And then uh, Nicki Minaj's verse on Monster. Um, I think I think she was already more well known at the time, but did not have a, her own record yet, certainly. But I couldn't think of many uh, examples before Snoop on Nothing But a G Thing where this had happened. Where right, where it's just like, okay, like, w- this guy just appeared on my TV and now he is definitely going to be a star, even though I've only seen him on someone else's song. Well, and thinking about it now, this was kind of a West Coast rap thing because Run DMC, you didn't see a lot of guest stars on their albums. Yeah. Not, not that I can remember. Uh, Tone Loke wasn't Tone Loke and the, and the Loke crew. Is it? But is was that just um, because that was earlier and it just hadn't become a custom yet? Maybe. But my, I don't know. my question is, is this what created the custom? I mean, did Dre come up with this idea of, hey, you've got other talented friends, let's bring them in and see what they can do as well. I'm guessing it probably predated this, but I but I think like he made it something absolutely necessary. And and it became necessary after that and it wasn't just West Coast. Now, this is one of the distinctions between West Coast and East Coast at, at this point. Uh, a lot of East Coast rap, I'd say the the main group that was famous at this time was Wu-Tang Clan. Oh, sure, absolutely. Um and they were once again a clan. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was nine of them when when they first came out. How many of them can you name off the top of your head? Oh man, RZA, Jizza, Ghostface Killa, Raekwon, Method Man, Capadonna. Uh, dang, that's six. Arabian Prince was he? No, no, no definitely <laughs> totally not. different. I always um, want to say Red Man, but he was. I, I one also of them. wanted to say Red Man, but I knew that was wrong. Um, Oh, oh, that was, oh, that was very good. Old dirty bastard, of course. Yeah, so sorry. R.I.P. I and I feel really, really bad for all of you members of Wu Tang listening to this that I forgot. Yep, I'm really, really sorry. Yeah, we are going to get a very angry letter from <laughs> a guy. <laughs> um, we're gonna we're gonna be the the target of a diss track. Well, I I, I remember watching a. Straight out of Compton for the first time with you in the theater. Oh yeah, and and going. MC Ren. I've never heard of him before, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, Inspect a deck. Okay. And you, God. 
Uh, right. How could I forget you, you, you got, got the rest of them? Wow, man. Yeah. I actually feel pretty good about yeah, myself. Yeah, that, that was really point. good. Yeah. So uh, the East Coast scene uh, eventually became P. Diddy, Puff Daddy, and his crew. Right. And they started doing the same thing that Dre was doing, bringing in artists. That's how Mace became famous. In fact, P. Diddy, the first few records he produced, he didn't appear on them at all. Yeah. Uh, then he decided he wanted to be his own superstar at, and started, you know, doing his... Yeah, in the back right. of every track and go, oh, there's Puff Daddy. He's yeah, famous. It's kind of funny. Like, I I enjoy Dr. Dre's rapping. I know he is not considered a great MC, um, but it's it's funny that, like, he could have done that, too. He certainly, you know, he had the juice to do that. To be like, you know, like, I don't care if you like it or not. I'm going to my voice is going to be on every record. And he, and he didn't. Well, and when you listen through this album, aside from the lead single, What's My Name, that he does rap a bit on, he's barely rapping on this album. Yeah. Like, he, he doesn't really insert himself in there vocally at all. He lets Snoop Dogg do his thing, and Snoop Dogg's crew uh, corrupt, and mm-hmm. all of the rest of them. The Dog Pound. <laughs> and the Dog Pound do their thing, and he's basically sitting back and and creating all the beats and, and the sounds of the record. Yeah. Um, the one thing that came to mind outside of hip hop when you when you uh, brought up guest verses is uh, the Bad Religion album Re- Recipe for Hate, which I think was the same year as this, maybe uh, um, either th- this year or the year before. Yeah, I think I think it was like '93. Um, and uh, there is there are a couple songs on that album. There's one with a guest verse by Eddie Vedder and yep. one with a guest verse by Jeanette Napolitano of Concrete Blonde. Both great songs. But once again, didn't launch <laughs> Did their careers. Not, nope. In, in fact, <laughs> not the same thing. It, it, but it's, it's almost the opposite thing. It's like, how can we get more people, people to, to listen, listen to Bad Religion? religion? <laughs> yes. Which, I mean, it does work that way in hip hop also. Like, you know, you got a new up and coming artist and like, you know, you get, I don't know, a Kanye verse. Probably hard to get a Kanye verse. Well, it's true. Uh, Eminem probably never, never would have become famous if it weren't for Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre heard him said, I want to produce your album. And it became huge. Uh, he just actually did that again for Anderson Pac, where mm-hmm. Anderson Pac was, you know, he'd made a name for himself with his first album, but now Oxnard has, came, has come out. It's produced by Dr. Dre and is getting major acclaim and has kind of put him on the map. So Dre still to this day does yeah. this thing with artists. Okay. Um, let's listen to another track. I want to listen to Absolutely. Ain't No Fun. When I met you last night, baby. Before you opened up your gap I had a respect for your lady But now I take it all back Cause you gave me all your pussy And you even licked my balls Leave your number on the cabinet And I promise baby I give you a call Next time I'm feeling kinda horny You can come on over And I'll break you off And if you can't fuck that day, baby Just lay back and open your mouth
Well, if corrupt gave a fuck about a bitch, I'd always be broke. I never have no motherfucking endo to smoke. I get smoked and loony. Bitch, you can't do me. Do we look like BBD? You hoochie groupie. I have no love for hoes. That's something that I learned in the pound. So how the fuck am I supposed to pay this hoe? Just the latest hoe. I know the pussy's mine. I'ma fuck a couple more times. And then I'm through with it. There's nothing else to do with it. Pass it to the homie. Now you hit it. Cause she ain't nothing but a bitch to me. And y'all know that bitches ain't shit to me. I give a fuck. Why don't y'all pay attention? Approach it with a different proposition. I'm corrupt. Oh, you'll never be my only one. Trick ass bitch. So this this brings up a whole bunch yeah, it really of stuff. Does. Um, first off, this song features Corrupt, who never really made a name on his own, but was one of Snoop's true homies. Yes, and features Nate Dogg and Warren G. Yep, who were once again catapulted into superstardom by Dre a year after this. Yes. Um. So this Nate Dogg, R.I.P. Rest in peace. So this song uh, first brings up the storytelling part of this whole album. Uh, it reminds me that this album is set up in a way that it's made to feel like you're listening to the radio the entire time. Yes. So it's almost w boss. If if it were rock, it'd be called a rock opera, uh-huh. but or a it, concept album. A, a, it, it is a concept album, and and it. It works really well if you listen to it the whole way through. And we brought this up on the last episode, but 90s albums tended to do this a lot where it was like these tracks aren't made to be listened to independently. If you listen to the whole album, it's made to be listened to all the way through. Now, the other thing that get that always comes to mind when I listen to this is it's so misogynistic. And it is it is when you listen to the lyrics, it's just basically about fucking bitches and and not giving a shit about them. Right. It's it's like it's attempting to to like quad quantify all the ways in which we're going to ensure that women, we're going to treat women only as objects rather than people. So this is what's funny about this. Yeah. This in my day became one of the party anthems. Sure. It gets played at every party I go to and the entire room is singing along with every lyric. Women, men. I was. I'm glad you brought that up because, on the one hand, I'm like, this is awful, and like, you know, I, I recognize that the music is very good, but I don't really want to listen to it because of the lyrics. On the other hand, there's something that feels sort of paternalistic about me making that call when, like you, I know plenty of women who enjoy this album. Now, now you're the father of a 15 year old girl. You probably don't want her to come home today and go, by the way, I got a track that you got to listen to. You're going to love this. I I don't care. I mean, <laughs> it's it's music. I, um, I guess you're right. But but I think about our mother. And if I had played this for her when I was 15, she would have been like, nope, nope. Stop it right now. But I'm a cool dad. <laughs> that's that's true. And good for you on uh-huh. that. Uh, you're, you're very progressive. So. I don't know what what happened with this song that made it the ultimate party anthem, aside from the fact that the same thing I was talking about with 
the pacing that Dr. Dre creates, it makes it really easy to understand all the lyrics. Uh, it's got a really, really catchy chorus. That, oh, yes, uh, that is that is the essence of Nate Dogg right there. That is that is a weird melody, and you know, it's 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 sort of like very clipped and constrained and like you know and arpeggiated in a way and he and he just like nails it spot on actually everybody on this track nails it spot on i am not a hundred percent sold on the first verse <laughs> that's nate dog i understand i know that's nate dog and i know he he sounds like that on purpose but i am not a hundred percent and i and i and r.i.p nate dog but <laughs> <laughs> i I love this track, though. It, every every time I hear it, I sing along with the entire thing. I'm one of those yeah. people who knows all the lyrics to it and still love it every time I hear it. And there's not a lot of songs I can think about that when I hear them, I don't change the track immediately. So yeah, um, the when you when you mentioned earlier the the idea like the the beat and the the basic melody um, staying consistent throughout the whole track but still like establishing some some dynamics and tension, um, that is not something that originated with hip hop. Um, I I was listening to probably um, switched on pop podcast recently. They were talking about um, pop songs where where that's the case. And they didn't mention this one, but the one, the only one that that came, jumped to mind for me and is now the only one I can think of is Free Fallen. Tom Petty. Sure. Like the the chorus is exactly the same as the verse. And it's it's just that exact same three chord progression the entire song. But that's that's what rap does a lot. Yes, is, absolutely. Is, is they take a a verse that doesn't sound like the chorus melodically. So the same thing is going on underneath. Sure. But there's this rhythm and this kind of flow to the verse where they are singing through it, and when it gets to the chorus, it's like, now here's the part where everybody sings along and we'll go back to something that is harder to follow after this. Yeah. So this this track is a good jumping-off point for this also, I think, uh, is the, the subject of names in yeah. rap. Um, <laughs> so on this track, we got Corrupt, we got Nate Dogg, uh, we got Snoop Doggy Dogg. Anyone else on this, on this track in particular? Warren G. Warren G., of course. Like... I gotta feel like there, the the extent to which it's acceptable acceptable to to take on a nickname varies a lot from genre to genre. I realize this is not a groundbreaking statement, but if you're not in one of those genres, if you're like in folk music, you've got to be real jealous of these guys, right? Well, I was thinking about were these guys called this during high school because I don't remember anybody during high school that I would walk up to and go, something Nate dog." How yeah. do you do it? Well, I mean, did you have any black friends in high school? I, I had a few. Of course, I'm from Portland, so yeah. there was a total of about 15 black people in the right. entire city. But if somebody had, had walked up to me and been like, call me Warren G, I would have been like, I'm not going to do that. Right. That That's not going to happen. I'll that's call you so Warren. Dumb. I'll, I'll call you Warren. Does Do you think Snoop Dogg in, in everyday life ever, who calls him Calvin? Um, maybe his mom. Maybe his mom. Yeah. Yeah. Probably nobody else. And and who knows when he started. And he, and he, she, she uses his full name when she's mad at him. <laughs> Calvin Brodus, I'm angry with you. Yes. <laughs> uh, it it's ridiculous, and yet they get total respect for it. Yeah. So, but like in metal, in metal, you can have a nickname. You can be like Buckethead or um, 
who's there's there's a guy in Slipknot with a funny name. I feel like um, Dimebag Daryl. Dimebag Daryl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I suppose so. Uh, but I don't know if when people walk around they say, "What's up, Dimebag? How you doing?" I don't know. Well, he, first of all, he's dead, so they they don't. <laughs> um, but I could see him being called Dimebag or Dime by his friends. The the only R.I.P. Dimebag Daryl. The only thing that I can equate this to in rock is not name so much as uh, how you dress on stage. Oh, okay, so, so that's true. I I always think about how Brian May from Queen would very often perform in a full white jumpsuit mm-hmm. when he'd play on stage. Astrophysicist Brian May. Yes, exactly. Uh, who built his own guitar? And as somebody who's performed on stage a lot, I often perform in front of crowds of. 15 20 people sure and somehow when you're performing in front of fifty thousand people wearing a white jumpsuit it's like oh my god he is awesome but if you try and do the same thing in front of 15 people they go what the fuck is that guy wearing mm. um i at one time in my life i had i had like an on-stage look <laughs> that probably came out for like three shows <laughs> it was uh i like a, a red t-shirt red pants uh blue hair and a uh a rainbow colored base oh i remember you having blue hair uh-huh not for very long for like a month yeah that wasn't a good look <laughs> i was i thought it was pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's listen to another track okay how about um well we'll we'll refer to this track as uh for for all my n's and b's More or less that slow flow, D-O-double-G, nigga. See these other fools, but you can't see me, nigga. Who am I? It's corrupt, motherfucker. Do or die. We give the fuck, motherfucker. So slow your roll, I'm in control like Janet. The locust 21-year-old nigga that's on this planet. Take it for granted, if you wanna. Cause I'm gonna grab my straps and clear the corner. Yacht. Could it be coming with a grip against the shit for 93? So 94's arrived, nigga. Back on up and let me or my dog corrupt, fuck shit up. Now can't nobody see me here or there. Whatever I bails, I put it down all around. Cause ain't shit for sale in the coop with the beat flossing off go deep. And my cousin Snoop packs well, you know what I mean. And it don't take much for the dog kind of bust a cap in your ass for getting us all fucked up. Now check it. It's a problem for niggas like those who supposed to be the shit for steady bitching like home. Okay, I love this song. This is my favorite one on the, on the record. And it starts with the line, well, it's a slow flow, bringing the point back around that what Dre was doing was slowing down the music so it allowed for more vocals during each bar, uh, yeah. created this totally different feel from what was being done before. There's not a lot of Snoop Dogg on this song. No, not, <laughs> um, not at all. Which I feel bad saying it's my favorite, but... Um, yeah, no, I have had this stuck in my head nonstop for the last few days. I was singing it in the shower this morning. It is a terrific song. Well, even ain't no fun. Those first two verses are not Snoop Dogg. Yeah. And he's the, probably singing on the chorus. He comes in three minutes into the song. Yeah, the album opens. I mean, okay, it opens with a skit, but then but then the first the first actual song, he's not the first voice on the song. No. Uh it, it it's I wouldn't say that it's selfless, but 
there's no issues with taking a back seat in order to create the art, if you want to use that word, that that is the album and the concept that is the album of all these people getting together and and telling stories over and over yep. again. You think um, Dr. Dre ensured his uh, the finger that he used on the pitch bench knob on the keyboard? <laughs> <laughs> kind of like how J-Lo ensured her ass? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. It's like if that mm-hmm. finger ever falls off <laughs> yep. or gets cut off, he gets like a million dollars. That's right. Or it, like if it just gets like slammed in a car door and he loses the use of it for a couple of months he gets like 200 thou but what you brought up earlier with what would these songs sound like without those pitch band type of melodies this song he leaves that out until the chorus comes yeah. in it's it's just the beat with this slow uh bass line that's that's created on a synth and he doesn't bring that melody in until the chorus and so it makes that chorus really hit what what do you think the bpm on this song is Fifty, yeah, but there's so much energy to it. It's so slow. It's that backbeat yeah. that he puts in. It's it's that really really heavy gated backbeat that he yeah. puts in a, on it. So awesome. I want to play Lottie Dottie real quick. Okay, this is this is a cover, sort of, sort of. Yeah, gotta say what's up to my nigga Slick Rick. For those who don't like it, eat a dick. But for those who with me, sing that shit. Has it go a little something like this? Lordy Dotty, we likes to party. We don't cause trouble. We don't bother nobody. We're just some niggas who on the mic. And when we rock up on the mic, we rock the mic. For all my dogs, keeping y'all in health. Just to see you smile and enjoy yourself. Cause it's cool when you cause a cozy conditioning. Which we create, cause that's our mission. So listen close. To what we say because this types of shit happens every day. I woke up around 10 o'clock in the morning. I gave myself a stretch up, a moaning, yawning. Went to the bathroom to wash up. I threw some soap on my face and put my hands up on a cup and said, um, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the top dog of them all? There was a ruffle double. Five minutes it lasted. The mirror said, You conceited bastard. Well, that's true. That's why we never have no beef. So I slipped off my. So they've basically taken uh, a Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick track and put different lyrics over the top Uh of it. Um, Mostly different lyrics. Some some taken pretty much verbatim from the original track. And and they they were probably known by known to each other and it was as easy as going to slick rick or dougie fresh and saying hey can we use your track uh we we were talking a little before the this episode about sampling and about how dr dre and snoop dogg probably had to pay a lot of money in in order to use these tracks although one of the reasons that they use P-Funk a lot is it probably didn't cost a lot of money in sense. the early 90s yeah. since nobody was listening to Parlin Funkadelic at the time to call up whoever owned the licensing and say, hey, we want to use parts of this track. How and also please send us? George Clinton over. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this track stands out to me because it's one of the tracks on the album that does not have a chorus. It does not have a hook. Interesting. It just tells a story yeah. all the way through. And the story is basically just Snoop wakes up, (laughs) he does his hair, Uh he does his nails. There was a ruffle duffle. (laughs) 
It's a rubble double. A rubble double. Okay. Five minutes it lasted. Uh, and then he goes out and runs into a girl he knows and her mom with two kids, and they get into a fight. And that's basically the end of the story. Yeah. Somehow, once again, most of the people I know can sing along with most, if not all, of this song. Mm-hmm. There's one section that is, uh, there's two sections with vocals, one sung by female, one sung by Snoop Dogg, uh, that are kind of catchy, but they're not really choruses. Yeah. It kind of shows how he was really, really good at just storytelling and creating these flows that are incredibly singable, even when they don't have a hook to them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to add to that. It's uh, I mean, it's it's also like this one, this one, like it's some of the subject matter is troubling, but like in sort of more of an observational way rather than like I'm Snoop Dogg and this is my upsetting personal philosophy. There, There's a point in this song where a baby gets thrown on the ground. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that that lyric always confused me like, wait a minute. Did the mom actually just throw the baby on the ground? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Apparently, that's what happens in Compton. Sure. Well, I mean, that's what happens just just specifically in the alley behind Snoop's house in Claremont. <laughs> in Claremont, <laughs> I think that's where this took place. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that one was also news to me. I I did not know that at one point he moved from Compton to uh, oh, I didn't a know it, until I was until I was researching for this episode. Yeah, <laughs> um, that was that was like right after I left there. So if I had hung on a little bit longer, probably I would have been hanging out and drinking coop shakes with Snoop. <laughs> Which they would, which they renamed Snoop Shakes. What are Coop Shakes? Oh, um, the the student union was the co-op, whatever I'd pronounced, but pronounced the Coop oh. um, at uh, Pomona College, and so they had milkshakes that were called Coop Shakes. Okay, <laughs> I, I have no evidence that they were ever actually renamed Snoop Shakes, but here's hoping. But news to me once again. So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of Snoop from here on. Because, okay, yes, because. This was what launched him into superstardom, but I can think of almost nobody else who's had so many ups and downs in their career where you're like, oh, Snoop is done. He's a thing of the past. He's a a caricature of himself. Sure. This is not a humble brag. (laughs) As a musician, I have opened up for, let's see, Warren G. Really? Um, I didn't know that. Twice. I've opened up for Coolio. And I've opened up for Sir Mix a lot. Oh, wow. And most of these guys are actually really nice, but they sure. pl- they play these small 400-person venues. And Snoop has had these points where he dipped down enough where I'm like, well, you can probably see Snoop in a club with two or 300 people now because nobody care about it, cares about him anymore. I think that the Snoop Lion thing, when he became a reggae star, right. nobody thought he was going to pull out of that. That was like the, the ultimate tailspin. Sure. And somehow he finds a new audience of 40, 50-something moms by somebody convincing him to do a show with Martha Stewart. Oh, I don't think it took a lot of convincing. I mean, I don't know if it was his idea, but... But talk about something that that if it had been pitched to me, I would have said, yeah, this is not going to work. Oh, yeah. No, when I heard about it, I was like, well, I mean, that's crazy. And, And now... I've not been to a Snoop Dogg show in a very long time, but I'll bet if you go to them, it is like this mixture of 30-something guys and girls, uh, you know, the the African-American population that still love him, and then moms. Yeah. There's, oh, definitely. There's got to be this huge contingent of moms going to see him, and he's all of a sudden 
playing much bigger venues again because not even through putting out another hit, just through finding another way to get himself into the public eye, he has become a star again after a 25-year career. Yeah, he's a very charismatic, like, you know, you want to hang out with that guy. Totally. Um, and this is, like, it, it uh, embodies, like, again, one of my most favorite things, which is uh, something going from uh, scary to totally, totally culturally accepted in a short time. Like, not that doggy style is ever really, like, at the heart of, like, the, the gangster rap scare, but it was in there. And, you know, like, to to tell, like, a mom, you know, uh, telling their kid not to listen to Lodi Doty in 1993 that, like, you know, you're going to be you're going to be watching this guy with Martha Stewart and maybe going to the show in 20 years. <laughs> if, if somebody had told me that uh-huh. in 1993, I would have said, well, first off, I would have said, who the hell is Martha Stewart? Right, sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I love this is I, I just I wish we like as a culture were able to like look ahead and see, OK, this thing, this this cultural trend that seems terrifying right now to white parents is going to seem like the most harmless thing in the world in less than a decade. It It's insane. It happens every single time, like fucking Dungeons and Dragons. Like, (laughs) remember when, I think maybe you were a little young for this, but when I was a kid, like, there was legitimate, there was was a legitimate general scare over Satanism. And in particular, that, like, if your kids played Dungeons and Dragons, they they would get involved in Satanism. Is that because of 13-sided die, or is just There's the... no 13-sided die. What, isn't that what triskaidekaphobia is about? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid of uh, spiders and 13-sided die. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't like, you know, the, like crazy Christian moms who wouldn't let their kids read Harry Potter. This was like a general, general cultural thing, like, you know, this seems dangerous. Well, and, and I think it was uh, more... Uh, I don't know what the right word is for gangster rap. That that seemed like like an obvious thing that the subject matter was was yeah, dangerous. Yeah, sure. But um, not Dungeons and Dragons so yeah. much. And also, yeah, like Metallica. Metallica was very scary oh, at, man. at one time. Yeah, I I remember seeing them in 1995 and thinking this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> kill them all. It might actually induce someone to kill them all. Maybe so. And and they're like your parents' favorite band now too. <laughs> Absolutely. It might it might uh, master of puppets might convince your kid to get into puppetry. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Uh-huh. All right. I think I think we should wrap this. Okay. That sounds good to me. I mean, I think we should wrap freestyle wrap the rest of the show. Really? No. Uh, don't don't even let me try. It would okay. come out really, really bad. All right. Uh, this has been Hidden Jukebox. You can find us at hiddenjukebox.com and on Facebook at facebook.com slash hiddenjukebox. Anything, anything we want people to weigh in on? If you like to party and not cause trouble and not bother nobody, uh, let us know. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Then, then you can potentially be part of our crew, which we're calling... <laughs> The, the H.J. Boys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, the the Google Doc on which, uh, like, there's nothing more gangster than a Google Doc, first of all. The Google Doc on which we uh, p- planned out the agenda for this episode, the title of it is H.J., uh, as in the name of the, sh- the initials for the show, H.J. Doggy Style. Oh, which I was so God, proud of. I didn't realize that until now. Uh, I shouldn't let you write these things. <laughs> <laughs> nope, no one should let me do anything. <laughs> All right, I'm Matthew Amster Burton. And I'm Jake Amster.